Hey Jesse, what do you see? Well, Natalie, I finally see green. <laughs> A whole lot of green. I haven't seen this much green in so long. Um, it, it's mostly pine, but there is quite a bit of, I guess you could call it like a deciduous, I don't know what kind of tree it is because we're in a different country and I can't identify anything, um, but some sort of deciduous looking tree to our left, mostly some sort of evergreen or pine. Um, there are wrens and finches and stuff everywhere. Uh, well, I guess I'm lying right this moment. I can't find one. But they were everywhere. You can hear them everywhere. Yes. Um, there's a nice breeze. It's kind of cold. Um, we are... Well, actually, I still... I don't exactly know where we are. We're in Bochamp. Is that what you called the it? Bochamp Falls Campground, I believe. Yes. At the top of a mountain. <laughs> it's at the top of a mountain. We're near the Great Coastal... Great, no, Great Ocean. Yes. Great Ocean Road. You can tell I don't know where we're at. <laughs> we're near the Great Ocean Road, and we are now a little ways off of it in the mountains. Um, and it is a nice change of scenery for us. So, in case you still don't know, I'm Jesse. And I'm Natalie. And like we said, we are in the trees okay no we're not in the trees we I, okay i i find it very entertaining that the way you described that it made it sound like we were surrounded by like a, a thick forest with just like pines on my left and different trees on my right it's kind of hurtful <laughs> when in reality we are overlooking like this grand vista of like mountainous hills and you can see for miles and miles it's just clear in front of us just forests and forests it's beautiful and it sounded like you placed us just in the middle of the woods. If I walked a little bit to my left, I'd be surrounded by trees. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'll give you that. All right, I'll give you that. Um, but yeah, it is nice to be out of the desert. Um, we've been meaning to record for a while now in the desert specifically because we wanted to talk about that scenery. But stuff just kept happening and we kept being tired and our vehicle keeps making us angry yeah let's do an osmo update actually because we haven't talked about it in a little bit it's a problem <laughs> so um unfortunately despite our threats to her in previous episodes uh, she has decided to continue being cantankerous um <laughs> this time she decided to uh bust a hard brake line uh yeah. brake fluid line which was super fun and it happened while we were at Uluru, actually, which was our whole quest to go to the desert to begin with. And apparently it's just a transformer because parts are just willy-nilly thrown around <laughs> inside. Um, because the mechanic literally was like, oh yeah, here's your problem. This part's not even attached. <laughs> it's just up in the car. And also it's uh, backwards. Yeah. It's not, not the way that it should be. Of course... That is the reason why we've been hearing all of these horrific banging sounds every time we turn a corner. We look at each other and go, that can't be good. And then every single mechanic we talked to before this one was like, nah, it's fine. It's no big deal. Yeah. It's, it was like, man, 
I, even I knew it could be the muffler banging around, but it's like you would think a mechanic would take a second look and at least think about it. But no, nobody noticed that parts were just broken and hanging yep. up in Except the Except for this absolutely wonderful, incredibly skilled mechanic that we encountered at Uluru. Um, I'm trying to remember what the name of the... Yeah. We actually expected to be up there for... Once we found out how big of an issue it was, before he looked at it, we were like, man, we're going to be up here for at least two weeks. We've got to find jobs. Like, this is going to be bad. Uluru area is so much more expensive just because it's in the middle of the desert. So we were like, this is kind of not a great scenario no. because we couldn't find any jobs um and, and not then, because there weren't jobs to be had it was mostly just that their onboarding process was super long which we're getting way too far into the details but well like i want you to understand our desperation like oh, yeah. there was a moment of like man we thought the rocks be down one was bad but it's really not because like we could find jobs this one and we were also running out of time to get other places and it was just we were yep. getting more nervous and then they told us well let this other guy look at it he might do some bush mechanics on it that's literally what they called yep. it which is like basically rig it up yeah <laughs> and except so, yeah, this man this man had an incredibly deep and thorough knowledge of welding which is just old school mechanics it was wonderful he basically took one look was like oh here's your problem this whole thing is flipped around and your your hard brake line's broken and we're like oh crap uh how long is that gonna take to get apart and he's like nah i can fix it today <laughs> yeah we were out of there in like two three days instead of yes. two three weeks it was amazing um and that that was actually Ayers rock automotive uh that was the the name of the place uh and they they did such an amazing amazing job um, so big thanks to them. Yeah, the, it was probably some of the most impressive, like, let's get you in, get you out. Like, don't get us wrong. It, it still cost a pretty penny, but I would much rather pay him to do a great job than to pay him to order us really expensive parts. Um, so yeah, big thanks to them. Um, also, I just saw another bird we've not seen yet and I wish I knew what it was. I was going to point it out to you, but it already flew away. It had like a really bright red stomach oh, on it. Oh man. Um, but it was like the size of one of the wrens. It was crazy. They've anyway. got a lot of colorful birds here. It's very fun. Yeah. So we've been just having fun observing all the different wrens this morning. Um, but yeah, this episode could be a two-parter. Not sure yet. Um, probably going to be a two-parter because mm -hmm. we just really thoroughly enjoyed like observing Uluru and learning about the culture around it and the other mountains around yes, it. I thoroughly enjoyed it in a lot of different ways. But before we get into it, first of all, I wanted to acknowledge you have your coffee. Yes, it's my second one. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm I... also drinking my second <laughs> cup of coffee. Uh, we've actually paused our plans to do this yes. because we wanted to take a time to really be able to talk about this, even if it slows us down. We want to get to Melbourne really badly, mm -hmm. but this felt important, and we haven't been in this good of a place. Mm -hmm. Also, we apologize if the wind is bad. There is very windy here, but we're mostly out of it, and if you hear like a faint shh in it's the background. The wind through the trees. Yeah. No, it's a beautiful little, beautiful little wind in the background. Yeah, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. Yeah. Um, also, also, mm -hmm. hopefully final announcement um, I believe this is our ninth episode that we're recording. I was hoping you were about to say that. And I just want to do a little celebration dance. I've been meaning to for the past three episodes. 
I see that one. Yellow. Did you see its little very... butt feather tails going crazy? I did not. I saw the. It was very, waving at us. Very, br- <laughs> <laughs> very bright yellow belly. In case you are wondering what's happening, we're freaking Watch out over tail. birds again. Watch its tail. It goes up. And like it was going way down a second. Anyway, birds waving at us. But go, continue your episode. Monologue. Um. So yes, <laughs> we're very distractible this morning. Um, most when, when we were doing our research on like our, our names for the podcast, we were finding a lot of podcasts that were dead. Yeah. Uh, and they had apparently the the theme was they were dead and buried by the sixth episode. Like yeah. they published their sixth episode and then they never touched it again. Yeah. So. Originally, we had wanted to congratulate ourselves on the seventh episode because we had gotten over the sixth episode hump, um, <laughs> yeah. but we kept forgetting. So now I am I am doing the little celebration dance for the ninth episode, which yeah. is even further, and I'm very proud of us. And I also want to thank you guys for continuing to listen to our rambling little stories, because uh, without you guys tuning in and listening, we probably would have stopped doing this already. Yeah. So thanks so much. Even, we really appreciate it. Even though it's about us and our memories. We're still selfish, like <laughs> so. Uh, we probably just would have uh, very shamefully just like done recording of like just voice memos so that we, <laughs> we could have looked back on it later, yeah. um, and then we wouldn't have published it online. But the fact that you guys are here and listening is is it does mean quite a bit, even if this is mostly for our own memories. So thanks yeah. for sticking with us. Yeah, in our next episode, we get to have another congratulation on our double digit episode. Oh, so excited! Woo! Um. Well, yeah, so that that's kind of, I guess, all of the announcements. We also had to catch the van before it ran out of oil. Oh, it yeah. was just casually. So we took it in when we first got the van to have like an oil change, tune up, check all the stuff. Apparently, they just ignored those words that came out of my, mu- my mouth. And I am not as careful with cars as I should be. So I didn't like check it myself. I just assumed they did their job. And the other day, I... I you can call it a miracle. You can call it, I don't know what happened. Divine providence. I, I don't <laughs> usually check things like that, but we had had so many issues that I was like, I'm going to check the oil. And we had just driven for so far. And I pulled the dipstick out, and there is not a drop of oil on it. The I, My stomach dropped so hard. I started looking up. I was like, how long can a car run without oil? It was like 30 minutes. And I was like, what? How is this happening? Uh, so it was so it was so bad. Uh, but we ended up putting oil in it. I think it's just, I just caught it before it went too far. Yeah. We're going to get it by a place, have all yeah. the filters and stuff checked. But it could have been bad. It, it wasn't bad. It wasn't it bad. She bad. didn't start acting funny. And I think we caught it before worse things happened, which, just saying... That's probably the first time that's happened with this car. Yeah. So, well done. We're going to have so much PTSD about vehicles yes. when we get back well, to America. Well, to be, to be fair, we probably shouldn't be buying cars from 2001 anymore. I already have one from 2001 back in America, and she is old trusty, but I am not about to buy another 2001 car. <laughs> yeah, but hopefully, I think the bulk of our long-distance driving is out of the way at this point. I think we're mostly to, like, shorter distance driving staying on the coast we might go a little inland depending on the situation but yeah like right now we're probably like what an hour out from the coast yeah we're yeah about an hour and we're gonna be staying pretty close for a while yeah oh there's the really bright red one that is that's like neon orange yeah that's crazy um sorry birds again maybe we should (laughs) we should put the title of this episode is just birds again (laughs) um 
But anyway, all right, let's get to actual Uluru and talk about that whole scenario. I will say I'm glad if we had not had the van, it would have been almost impossible to get to see the outback like we got to see it. Um, But being able to drive through the desert, which we timed pretty perfectly because the weather's cooled off, so it wasn't a hot desert. (laughs) Take that desert stereotypes um <laughs> but, but uh yeah there were like nights where it was cold but, oh it was uh, way too cold it but, was it was a problem for me mm-hmm. i am i am in case you don't know this about me i am incredibly not cold tolerant um i'm basically a lizard uh wherein if you stick me in a freezer i will freeze just, uh, there's a word for that cold-blooded just Cold-blooded. Yeah. 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 So, anyways, <laughs> um, I didn't want to. I didn't. I didn't want to imply that I'm cold and heartless. Uh, like, okay. I, I'm. I am cold-blooded though. I, I need the sun and warmth at all times. So a cold desert night, kind of brutal. Yeah. It's a little hard. It's a hard to get through. It's very much so like, uh, give me my sweaters and mm. I'm gonna sleep in every single layer of clothing I have, kind of a thing. <laughs> But being able to stop in like Cooper PD and Lightning Ridge and uh, where else do we? I mean, Roxby Downs and just all of these areas in the middle of the outback was. If I had not had that experience, it would that would have been a piece that felt like we missed. Yes. If we had not gotten to do it, so I'm like super grateful that we got to make our way out there. I am so glad to not still be out there. Yes. Let me make that clear. Yeah. So glad to be back <laughs> to the coast. It is nice seeing a lot more green. Um, Granted, we did see green out in the desert because it was starting to get cool. And the way their growth pattern works is that everything starts to grow again when the weather gets colder, actually, because everything dies off in the summer because it's so hot. So we were actually seeing quite a bit of green, even all the way out to Uluru. Our Um, camel tour guide actually said it was one of the greenest years he had seen. Yeah. so we did see quite a bit of green. It's just we didn't see tree green. We saw like shrub green, which yeah. is different. So it, it feels more like, feels a little bit more like home right now because we're among like lots of rolling hills and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of trees. Mm-hmm. All right. But I think a good way to start the topic off of like Uluru in that area was what we were thinking about initially calling this episode because. <laughs> We kind of looked at that area out of order. Like, normally you go to Uluru and that's your focus. Well, we found out there's other mountains in that area, too, not just Uluru. Yes. Um, and one is, correct me if I'm saying it wrong, but it's Katajuda? Yes, I okay. believe so. That one is kind of the one we went to first, um, just because it just worked out with how we could do our hiking and tours and things. Um, and when we first went to it, we were like, I think we're Team Katajuda. <laughs> like, that was going to be the name of the podcast. Because, like, this mountain feels cooler than Uluru. This mountain rocks! <laughs> yeah. So, for context, for those who've never been or seen images of them, Uluru is the very, like, stereotypical big orange rock that mm-hmm. you see that is, like, the representative of Australia. It's got all these grooves down the face of it, but it's, like, one big dome rock um, out in the middle of the desert just sticking up out of the ground. Yeah. Meanwhile, if you just turn around, <laughs> you look, you're looking at Uluru and you just turn around, you see off in the distance these like weird, very knobbly, like, y- you know how, how mountains are like points usually? 
these things were like big round heads sticking out of the earth. That's what it was. That's what it means, right? It's called, yeah, it's actually called many heads. Yeah. Um, and I can see why because they're just incredibly round and tall, mm-hmm. almost like camel humps. Um, and there's just a big collection of them, and you're like, what the heck is that? Like, <laughs> okay, yes, cool, big orange rock, but also, what the heck is that? <laughs> yeah, and like you're there, and it's. So I, I could be wrong. We'd have to fact check this, but Karajuda, as in like land area mass, feels bigger. It does. Like I think there's more, like it covers more land, and there's more like peaks and things yes. like that. More so it, valleys, a yeah. lot more. It looks, it looks more appealing to the eye because yeah. there's a lot more variety and a lot of it, it breaks up the horizon quite a bit. Like yeah. I remember we were driving to Uluru. And we were going, okay, that's Uluru. What is that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so when we found out it was Karajuda and we could actually drive to it, mm-hmm. we drove and then we, we hiked around in the area, um, in the area that they have open for people to hike. Yeah. And and I can't remember. I, I might remember. I'm not sure. You'll remember the term, I think. Uh, the thing that Karajuda is made out of is a conglomeration of rocks. What yes. is the term? Yeah. <laughs> so it's literally, it gets wild to look at. You're walking and it looks like almost, you know how people will put like stepping stones down in like a mortar. So there's like a mortar, like in between the stones and like, you'll see walls and like fire, like our own fireplace is kind of made yeah. like that where there's like a mortar in between these rocks. And that's how this entire mountain looks. Yes. Like it is wild it's very interesting i wish i wish we had more pictures of it and I, we can explain later why we have less pictures um because there is a story behind that but Pr- pretty much no pictures <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but it is it was a very interesting place and initially i was like i don't know it's gonna take some convincing to make me not team kata because like it's this very, is it's just cool. beautiful yeah. it's just absolutely breathtakingly gorgeous there's an amazing like where you can hike you can actually hike into kata Judah, and when you get into there there's like an amazing view in between the different peaks and yes. stuff there's it's just beautiful outlook. there's an outlook where you've got these two just completely vertical rock faces on either side of you and you are on an outlook looking out over this valley that just drops straight down it feels like and you're viewing you're just viewing this gorgeous like the the trees and the bushes and the you see birds flying it's it, you feel like you're in a movie a little bit yeah. when you are on this lookout looking out on this this view um but yeah but then uluru came like the dark horse underdog <laughs> that it is marching into our lives and it came and it was like oh you like conglomerate rocks no how about just a big chunk of iron oh my god uluru is like solid iron yeah okay so it, it's not solid. it's iron. pretty close to solid <laughs> iron <laughs> it, is, it is a rock that has an incredibly high percentage of iron in it iron. and the reason why Uluru looks as red as it does, especially when you see like all those sunset pictures with the sun just gleaming off of it and it's just like scarlet red, it's because it's rust. Yeah. It's, it's just, it is oxidized metal. This mountain has rusted. <laughs> Do you understand how weird that is? Yeah. It, it, gets, it gets weirder. I was going to save the specific stories for later and, and there's so many stories we have, so I'm not wasting anything. But this thing is so much iron and so much rust that it is magnetic 
to storms. Storms will come into the area. There are pictures where the cloud will rest over the top of Uluru. There is no wonder why this thing has spiritual significance. Because if I saw that, I would also be like, whoa. That's (laughs) insane. This mountain is controlling the weather. Like, that is, that's crazy to me. Yeah. I'm blown away. And it's it's really cool, honestly, because, like, there's obviously a very scientific reason for that. It's, you know, the, the different polarized ends of the mountain and then also the polarization in the cloud, and that's why they're kind of, like, attracted to each other. But that's probably one of the only reasons why Uluru has as many water holes as it does, yeah. which makes it a really cool ecological center in the middle of the desert mm-hmm. because it's got several water holes that are almost always almost always have some sort of water in it which makes it like a a hub and a haven for all kinds of animals um at least it did in it back way back when it's less so now and that's partially because of all the human activity that now occurs Mm -hmm. at uluru but apparently they still see sometimes like wallabies bounding out of these water holes like really super early in the morning before any human activity starts up yeah, and one of our, our tour guides actually explained that, like, on top of the mountain, sometimes it, like, it almost looks blue, where it's been, like, struck by lightning, and it's, like, the way the iron and the lightning have, like, interacted and cracked and all this other stuff, which sounds crazy, um, and I don't know if you want to jump into this super fast, or if you want to use that as a transition to talk about the fact that, like, used to, you could climb on it, yep. or if you have more things you want to talk about in general first. Um, well, I did want to just give a shout out to the, the, the sunset and the sunrises because they really are. Oh, yeah. They are gorgeous at Uluru. They're really not overblown. Like, uh, I personally, my favorite one was on the back of a camel <laughs> uh, just because I'm a huge animal nerd. So I was loving that experience. We did we did a, a sunrise camel like tour kind of a thing where they took you out into the desert and you weren't super close to Uluru because that's a national park. So they weren't allowed to cross into the national park boundaries, but mm-hmm. you could still see it and you could still see the sunrise on it. And um, it was just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. And usually very clear skies, but apparently when it does rain, like the rain just pours off of Uluru and these torrents of water coming down all of these different grooves in the rock face that are just the very deep rock, grooves in this rock. Yeah. Um, and Uluru itself is just a very interesting geological formation because of how old it is. Yeah. Uh, it's not very tall. It's not very large. But the reason why it's so rounded and so uh, smaller, actually, is because it is that old. Uh, generally... The rule of thumb for mountains is the bigger it is, the younger it is. Um, and the, the like the really jagged peaks that you see are because of the fact that it hasn't really been weathered that much. So like uh, I believe the Andes, I believe the Himalayas, like those are all actually younger mountain ranges, even though they're so huge. Um, meanwhile, like in Georgia, actually one of a really, really old mountain is actually Stone Mountain. Um, or even the Appalachians. Or the mountains. Appalachians yeah. in general, because those are more like rolling hills. Yeah. Uh, they they estimate that the Appalachians are like millions of years old. Um, I actually wanted to give Stone Mountain a bit of a shout out because I don't think people realize how cool that actually is. I yeah. don't think I realized it because like we did some research and I, we need to do a little bit more. But Stone Mountain, it 
it's it's impressive in its own right with its size. Yeah. Uh, you know, we went I ahead. I believe it's and, bigger than Uluru. I, at least what is showing above ground. Yes. Uh, they they estimate I think Uluru is like just at least as big uh, underground, if not, if not larger. Yeah. So like I don't know for sure that it's actually bigger, but what you can see I think is. Yes. And granted, we carved into Stone Mountain, so it's not like as natural looking, but it is one of those things that like. You know, Georgians, give yourself a little pat a little, on the back. A little round of applause you know, like, for being in an area with a cool mountain. <laughs> yeah, you got your own Uluru in your backyard. Yeah, which I I actually do have a lot more appreciation for Stone Mountain <laughs> because I've been to Uluru, which is crazy to say. Um, but that's actually kind of an enduring theme. I know this is a little off track, but the more I learn about a different country, the more I start to appreciate my own home country yeah. more. Um, cause like when we were on our camel tour, for instance, our tour guide was pointing out all of these different, um, these different bushes and shrubs and succulents and describing like what they're used for, like saying like, oh, this is a salt, this salt bush and camels really love to eat this because that's where they get like their electrolytes from, um, and their, their sodium intake essentially. And very literally salt bush is apparently just a very salty bush, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, pointing out, like, the spinifex grass, which has a really cool um, effect of, like, a tar-like substance that it gives off, which we'll get into in a little bit, because um, the Aboriginal people are masters at, uh, you know, reading the land and being able to use different parts of the land. But as I, like, as I was learning all about that, it made me wonder about, like, what is it that is in my own backyard in Georgia that can be harvested? And what, what can be eaten naturally and foraged, essentially, because out at Uluru, everything for hundreds of years was foraged. Mm -hmm. Hundreds, if not thousands, if not further back, which we'll talk about that later in a different story. I know we're doing a lot of teasers, but, <laughs> like, there's a lot of really cool stuff that we learned. And then with, like, so I... I she mentioned the camel tours and the sunrise. The camels were great. Big, big fan of the camels. We actually tried to get a job with them. It almost worked out. Almost. Um, Shout out to you guys, camel tours. But we, I actually may have liked the sun. Two things I want to say about that. One, I may have actually liked the sunset a little more because I feel like you got to see the color changes. This is true. Really interesting. Like the, uh, so Uluru sometimes just looks brown. Uh -huh. Other times... It'll, like, you can really see the creases and the ridges in it, depending on, like, how the clouds are and stuff. And then other times, it'll be bright, almost glowing red from the rust um, as yeah. the sun hits it just right. So it's very interesting to see all those color changes. Yeah. And then last thing about the camel tours, we got to try, and I forgot the name of the bread, but what kind of bread was it? Damper bread. We got to try damper bread, which is the type of bread that the Aboriginal people would make from a certain type of seed that you, I think, mentioned. I don't remember if... if uh, no, it's not from the Spinifex, but... Um, but yeah. It, it is It is a traditional, it is a traditional Australian bread. I do think damper may have, like, tweaked that original recipe. Maybe. Um, because a lot of damper is also called beer bread. Um, and I don't know how much beer the uh. Aboriginal people had um, when they were originally creating this kind of bread. And it's also been adapted to, like, more um, modern, yeah. re uh, like, recipe ingredients because you obviously can't get flour in the yeah. middle of, you know, the desert. And that's the whole point is they essentially found a flour, like, replacement. And I super enjoyed the damper bread. It was one of those things that, like, it was kind of plain, at least what we had. 
but it took toppings super well. Like, yeah. it would soak in the butter really well, and, like, oh, it was with a little bit of a topping. It's amazing. Mwah, beautiful. Uh, so. And that was um, Kwandong jam, I believe. Okay. Uh, which is, Kwandong is a, I'm saying it like it's, anyways, <laughs> Kwandong jam is a native fruit, I believe. Okay. Um, and you can actually see, like, the pits of those fruit uh, laying around a lot i believe um I'll, i'm gonna have to double check that but the kwandong jam is is something that is like it's considered bush tucker it's con- considered like native australian fare essentially yeah so yeah that was kind of just the lead up and our more i guess touristy experience of like uluru katajura and then uh what was the third mountain we saw it coming in we saw it was called Mount Connor. It made us think it was Uluru as well. We were like, can we already see it? We were like half an hour yeah. to an hour. I was like, that's crazy. Yeah, and then it wasn't. Which uh-huh. is apparently a very common phenomenon for people who are like coming into the Outback for the first time. To the point where its tongue-in-cheek name is Fooluru. <laughs> yeah. Which is hilarious. I love Australians and their sense of humor, by the way. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so that's, that's, that's Fooluru, uh, Mount Connor. But the Aboriginal name for it is Artilla. Which okay. I believe the reason, uh, the, the like story behind that mountain has to do with the ice people. I haven't looked into it a ton, um, but it wasn't it wasn't a mountain that they super focused on. <laughs> but whenever you see um, Aboriginal artwork that has both uh, Uluru and Katajura on it, you almost always see a representation of Mount Connor with it because yeah, they're considered the three mountains the three together. Ones, yeah. Yeah, so that was because we Katajuda and Artilla. Because we had seen actually some artwork that, like you said, they they had symbols for all three mountains mm-hmm. uh, present. So, sometimes it'll be just Uluru, like usually in in that area specifically, because artwork can change from area to area for what they represent. If you see like one mountain represented, it's typically Uluru. Yeah. But if you see more than one mountain represented, it's always three, and it's always all three of those represented. Yeah, that was our experience with the artwork um but i think that's probably a good chance since we're already like halfway through the episode to jump into you wanted i think you wanted to specifically talk about how like the trail had closed Mm -hmm. and and how like some of the different things we've heard um because we've heard negatives and positives yes and you know and it's and like i can i could see where again as most things you can kind of see where both sides are coming from yeah um and how it it can be a little hard sometimes to be on the side that feels like you're missing out um mm-hmm. but, but it is interesting and I'll let you dig into that we wanted to talk about specifically the things that have changed around Uluru over the past few decades um because in uh, 1985 the land actually uh started being co-managed by both the aboriginal peoples um which is Anangu uh that is the aboriginal people in that area um, co-managed between them and the government, the Australian government. Um, and since 1985, there have been a lot of changes to the way that Uluru is used and seen and, um, you know, used for tourism. Um, and one of the most significant events was the closing of the climb of Uluru in 2019, um, which is something that we'll get into. But just as a, again, mini disclaimer, this is third-person perspective coming in knowing very little and getting both sides kind of of, to some extent of like 
the people who have lived here and have seen those changes and have seen the like grinding of gears that can come from changes like that and also hearing from the people who manage the park both aboriginal and non-aboriginal talking about why some of those changes were necessary or good for for the land and like as we've met a lot of people we have like i said we kind of have gotten a bit of both sides where it is like not everybody so it's also called Ayers rock yes um for many years and then when they decided to go back to what the aboriginal people had always called it which was uluru you know there there's always some pushback on those kind of things as well because as much as having called it Ayers rock kind of stole from the aboriginal people's culture it feels like if you grew up with it your whole life being called Ayers rock that something was also like stolen from you so like you you understand that grinding of gears that kind of goes back and forth and it's one of those things that like we just it is it is to say as natalie said we came in we've gotten to see both sides and like i definitely think there is a direction we lean on the way that we think is probably the right way to handle it but it's also one of those things that we know it's messier than what we've seen mm-hmm. like we know, we understand that probably both sides have not always handled it perfectly like right. even from you know the aboriginal side i'm sure there were things that were probably said or done that that weren't the perfect way to handle things you well, know people are people yeah and we've missed humans, that history humans are always humans and we will never perfectly handle conflict yeah. um but i i do agree with you in the sense of there is a way that we um we lean and there's there's a view that we support but again it is easy for us to walk in as outsiders and be able to make these observations because we have never had to live that so just just saying it for um for our own well-being and for the audience's well-being like this is not a perspective of people who have lived with the kind of conflict that currently exists still to this day um between some of the changes of of the two populations and specifically if we have any like australian friends that are listening to this show which i think we have a few if you guys have ways to like add to what we've learned and like add to the bigger picture and like help us understand things that have happened throughout the history if we say something that like you just think is totally off the wall and not at all true like let us know because again we we enjoy learning and building a bigger and broader picture of what has actually happened and the way things really are so like if you disagree that's fine call us up like we'd love to hear about like literally some of the things you disagree about and we might address it on a Mm -hmm. later episode because like we think that's that's awesome like we want to know we just thoroughly enjoy learning and we enjoy sharing uh what we've learned which is kind of the point of this whole episode yeah so let's talk about it so yeah jump into the trail (laughs) the the trail the the uh the closing of the the climb so for a very long time uluru uh had first of all you could do things like camp around the base of uluru and as part of that you could also do a climb up to the top of uluru that climb has closed as i said in 2019 which is why when you were ma- making the mention of, like, the blue steel at the top, it was one of those things, the blue, like, not steel, but, like, the blue rock from the lightning hitting the, the iron in the mountain. Um, we will never be able to verify that ourselves <laughs> um, because we can't do the climb. 
This climb, however, is still open to very specific peoples, meaning if you are Anangu and you are a young boy who is turning into a man, you can still make that climb because that is the original purpose behind the climb of Uluru. Um, it was a very important uh, spiritual thing for them. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about multiple different things about their spirituality and their traditional laws and stuff like that, which is all called Chukurpa. Um, it's a very important concept um, for them and for the way that they interact with Uluru. Um, so I think it's it's important to, to give a little shout out to that term, Chukarpa, because I just, first of all, I love saying it. It's very fun to say. Um, and second of all, it shapes pretty much all of the decisions that have been made around Uluru. And it's very important to, to talk about that in context of everything that's that's been done to, to change it. And we had started to see, I mean, they not only closed the trail and changed the name, like, they obviously take it very seriously. And this is one of the things that we've very specifically heard some pushback on is the idea that there's times where they don't even want you to take photos. Mm -hmm. And as, like, just your Westerner tourist, it can be very easily to be like, who are you to say right. that I cannot take a photo of this big rock? Right. Like, I should be able to take a photo. Like, that's the initial, like, your gut reaction mm -hmm. wants to be that. And there are a lot of people... That very much voice that. Like, yes. we have run across it and, it, and I don't blame that for being the gut reaction, but I think you have a better, mm. I think you can explain a little better than I can exactly how they view that and why, right. and I can throw in some comments too. But. Right, so for from a from a very Western perspective, again, to like put it in context, um, it's really odd to be asked <laughs> not to take pictures because, especially on, on like national parks, Yeah. because like, Part of the whole point of national parks, especially in the West, is like to preserve beauty, right? And to be able to like document beauty. So like bird watching happens all the time there. Photography happens all the time there. Like that is like uh, national parks are just the place to take photos. Um, and here, you know, you come across a situation where it is a national park, even if it is co-managed, and they are sectioning off places of this giant rock in the middle of the desert and they're saying hey don't take photos of this but at the same time to emphasize what you just said even the aboriginal community is very at least the our, our tour guide and stuff like that was very clear that they do want to share right part of their culture and stories with us like right. it's not that like as a national park they actually are inviting you in right like it is like no you are welcome here we want you here we want to share this with you but also don't take photos of certain spots. <laughs> with, with context, yeah. right? And I think that that is, again, like a foreign concept to a lot yeah. of Westerners. But I think there's a way to look at it that makes more sense to how we understand things. Because if you are invited to somebody's house, somebody's private property, and somebody was to ask you, hey, I'd rather you don't take pictures of like my stuff... That's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, you would understand that. And, and it would be like a lot easier to respect. Let's take that a step further. If somebody invites you to their like outside, like say that they have acres and acres and acres of forest, right? And they're like, hey, 
I, you know, maybe there are some sensitive species on my land or whatever. I'd really prefer it if you just don't take any photographs while you're here. Most people, the vast majority, I'd say, of people in the West would be like, oh, yeah, totally chill. No problem. This is your private property. Now, where a lot of people will say, okay, this this analogy runs short is it's not private property, right? The 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 national parks is not a private property. Ayers Rock, Uluru is not private property. However, the Aboriginal people have been there for thousands of years. Yes, they were a a um, traveling population. Um, I'm forgetting the word for that right now. Nomadic. Nomadic. Yes, they were a, they were a nomadic population. But Ayers Rock, Uluru is steeped in Aboriginal history. Not only is it steeped in Aboriginal history. It's steeped in their their mythology, their their spiritualism, their creation stories mm. are literally marked out on the rock, um, and that is part of Chukarpa is their their creation stories, and that's one of the reasons why it's so important to them. So if we're looking at it from a Western lens, if we're talking about who owns quote unquote that, which they may not self describe as, mm-hmm. by our own definition and by our own like view on that this land belongs to the aboriginal people they have been the caretakers of this land for thousands and thousands of years and they know this land way better than anybody else who's come in after that so it's important i think to view it from a an equivalency in the western perspective Mm -hmm. of this the, we are we are being invited into what we should consider their private property. Yeah, and just like as another slight metaphor, I think for a lot of the people that are listening that have religious views, it's not entirely different to think of it as like if you're in your church or your mosque or wherever you're worshiping, and someone just came in and started breaking whatever rules you had, it like. That's also disrespectful. Yes. Like it's one of those things that like you don't have to believe the things to know that that's disrespectful. And like the way that they would word it, the way they actually used and, and we've talked about how like we don't want to conjecture too much because we don't fully understand the stories and and they they basically tell you like they're telling you their children's stories and like to an extent. So it's like we don't want to conjecture too much on their like theology and their mythology, but it is one of those things that they talk about it as if for the ceremonial and sacred areas, even when it's like people that have passed away, it's very obvious that they sometimes have the same mentality. They they want those things to be viewed where they're at. There, yes. There's a significant and sacredness that they hold to the location itself. Mm-hmm. Like I said, there were even like pictures of people that had passed away that would be covered up on their posters and things like that, basically saying, in order to respect this person that has passed, we choose not to show their photo. Right. And it's like, there's something about that idea of like, this person or this place or this sacred spot has a place it belongs. Mm -hmm. And we don't want that to be viewed outside of this place. Now that said, they also were totally open for you to take pictures of certain areas. Like they didn't close all of that off. Um, But I just wanted to say that as like another sort of angle to that metaphor and then one other thing i wanted to touch on this is something that we don't agree with but i I still wanted to voice we had heard this i guess you say argument or frustration voiced once and i I just wanted to put it out there because i i thought it it deserved the respect of being mentioned but also like i guess rebuttaled a little bit of 
we heard one time somebody say something along the lines of like it's a desert these people have not lived out here for thousands of years and they've not done this and they've not done that. it's almost like a like a narrative that was developed in order for them to get a hold of the land and do what they wanted to and I'm not saying there couldn't be a big lie, but from what we have sat and studied and seen, we've met people that work with these Aboriginal people, we've met some of the Aboriginal people themselves, and the knowledge that they have is amazing. Like, mm -hmm. it is obvious that they have been out there for some time. So yeah, I just really wanted to, to put that out there as like, some people push back on it a little bit, and again, I... I understand the doubt because like one of the comments we heard is like oh there's not enough water out there to survive and it is a desert but <laughs> yes. like as you stated or, or kind of talked about like there is water out there yes we saw it and and Uluru is a great example of an enduring waterhole yeah where like not, there are trees in in the the valleys of, of Uluru and you don't get trees like that without there being some kind of enduring source of water yeah and, and they were very one thing I found very interesting is they were very honest with the fact that when different droughts and things would happen because they would happen and they would sometimes last for a very long time they they talked about how essentially all that that did was confined them to a smaller area. Yes. Um, and sometimes that would happen for decades. Like sometimes there would be people who would go through the, that like maturity process, they'd come into their mm -hmm. manhood, and they would learn these songs about all of these different water holes throughout the land because that's how through Tukurpa, like they passed on knowledge through like auditory, like oral stories and song. And they would be like, oh man, I wish I could go see this water hole. And their their fathers and their grandfathers would be like, "We, you absolutely will. You will see that water hole at one point, but we have to wait for the rains to come." Yeah, like they very much so talked about the fact that they were nomadic and they would go to even as far as the coast because there were times where they could tell like what time of year it was mm -hmm. um, based on like reading the stars, <laughs> just because of. I mean, we do the same thing. We have star charts for seasons. And they were able to tell when the season was and when they should start traveling to go to the coast to get stuff like get to where the peak of the snapper was and yeah. have have abundance through the fishing at the coast. So, yes, they obviously did travel, but they were very clear about the fact that, like, like you were saying, when there is a drought, they would stay where the water is, which is the water holes near places like Uluru. Yeah. So, like, I understand the reflexive, like knee-jerk reaction to be like well you can't survive there there's no water but it's like when you actually i don't know we took the time to try to listen and understand their stories and to see the water ourselves and to understand how they went about things and it's just it's one of those things that's like okay if you spend a little more time not just trying to figure out how to argue with these people but to actually listen it becomes much more evident at least in our opinion that like these people have been here a very long time mm -hmm. and like be very careful how much you want to like fight against something because it if like if you're wrong <laughs> it's very disrespectful <laughs> like that's not a cool thing to and do on top of that just to like pivot a little bit and talk about our experience as americans um we've had very strong uh examples i would say lately in american politics and in the landscape of current American opinion, 
where there are some very extreme groups that exist currently in America that flat out refuse to take facts. They just refuse. Yeah. And we've seen the damage that that can do, not only to them, but to the people around them. And it's, it's very destructive to not actively put trust and belief in other groups and to yeah. try to understand other people's perspectives. And it can lead you to these echo chambers that are very difficult to get out of. And we're, we're kind of seeing the results of that real time in America. So even though we can't necessarily speak to the conflicts necessarily here, we can speak to the conflict that occurs when people refuse to listen to the stories of other people and will just call them liars no matter what. Yeah, because it's, I mean, the reality is I'm never going to necessarily believe their mythology as they do, but... Because the, they, they see it as fact. They yes. see it as, as there's there's evidence in the stone to them. Yeah, and, and like, yeah, it would be great if we believed all the same things, but the reality is... They also have so much that they can teach me and others about the land that are very real things that there is no disagreement on. Like, it's like, and so to be able to live in that, like, meet you in the middle space where, like, you don't always have to agree on theology to right. be able to sit there and agree that, oh, wow, there's this crazy thing called a honey ant, which I can't <laughs> wait to tell you guys about. <laughs> um, yeah. But, like, you know, there's just stuff like that that's mm -hmm. just... It's mind-blowing. And I know there was a specific story you wanted yes. to tell there's, that there's is one, so fun. That's there's so one cool. interesting story. Um, I think it's pretty cool uh, that kind of shows, like, the amount of expertise that is required and um, is, like, used by yeah. the Anangu or by the Aboriginal people in general that have worked these lands and understand how to forage in them. Now, to give a little context to this, this story was told to us by the guide that we were with on our camel tours, um, and this is mostly anecdotal from, from him. Um, it's either somebody that he knew or people that he heard of, because he's a camel guy and he's got a lot of people, he's got a lot of connections to a camel of, people. A lot of camel people. A lot, a lot of camel people. Um, but the story goes that he was saying he, he heard of these two... Um, these three guys who had all decided to travel across the desert. Two of them were white guys, one of them was an Aboriginal guy. And the two white guys had this huge caravan of camels. It was like six camels or something like that for two guys. Um, and they loaded them down with like a ton of water and food. And they set off across the desert and this, um, their Aboriginal guy, the, the Aboriginal friend or, or whatever, he shows up with and this is where the the details are a little fuzzy. Uh, he either showed up with just a backpack, or just a backpack and a camel. Yeah. Uh, one very, of the two. Very small resources. But the point of the story is not the camel that may or may not have been there. Um, <laughs> the point of the story was that at the end of the trek, the Aboriginal guy showed up at their destination ten days earlier than the other dudes, and the other dudes showed up ten days later basically on the edge of starvation yeah and the aboriginal guy hadn't lost a single ounce yeah um and that was because the whole time he literally was just doing what he had been taught to do by his elders and was foraging the whole the whole way across the bush and apparently that helped him survive better than two dudes with an entire camel caravan yeah so 
if you want to talk about expertise and being able to read the land and the amount of knowledge that it would take to be able to survive in those conditions, at least from that anecdotal story, it's pretty obvious that there's a pretty heavy difference. <laughs> yeah. And like we even saw while we were there, it's hard to know exactly the situation, but like we were walking down the trail and there's specific areas where they ask like the hikers not to really go because like they're trying to regrow vegetation that's been beaten down. Um, and like, I know you admit, uh, you want to talk about a little bit like the fact that there had used to be a camp around the base yes. and like diesel fuel had been like poured out in yes. some areas. Um, that's one of the reasons why the camping was actually changed, basically outlawed, used to be able to camp around the base of Uluru, but there was a lot of damage done to the yeah. land and to the point where there are areas of land around Uluru that, like you were saying, they had had diesel poured on them and there are a lot of experts uh, for reforest, well, not reforesting, but re like vegetating those areas that say that those areas cannot grow anything now. Yeah. It's it just could, completely dead. It could be a very long time before anything mm -hmm. grows in those spots again. Yeah. And those, those areas, some of those areas were actually sacred areas to the Anangu. So it's, it, it, there was a lot of damage done. Um, and a lot of people who came that weren't necessarily honest players yeah. will say um, that as a result of that and as a result of like the very heavy tourism that occurs there now, like that's why the rules were changed. And as a conservationist, I can fully understand the reasoning behind changing yeah. those rules. But as we saw, it was interesting, though, there's the land that like we're not supposed to go on because they don't want us trampling the plants and stuff. But we saw a lady that was obviously Aboriginal. She had her backpack and she had like a pack of dogs with her and they were just like walking around and, and who knows exactly what she was doing. But it gave you this idea that like she's still doing what, you know, they talk about doing. Like she's yeah. probably picking a few things, put them in her backpack. Mm -hmm. And it was just interesting to see. Yeah. Um, and it's like, yes, now they have a grocery store in town. And so like their idea of starvation is probably not near as prevalent. Like they're if they don't you know, kill a kangaroo, they're not going to die because they can just go pick mm -hmm. some kangaroo up at the shop. But it's like, they still practice a lot of the things mm -hmm. that they've done. And I think they're reclaiming a lot of that culture. Mm -hmm. Cause like they, to, they did lose a lot of their culture, especially the coastal cities. Uh, and we can talk about that a little bit more, but, um, cause we are coming to an end of our time with this episode. We have so much more to talk right. about with this. But I did want to make a, a slight mention, like you were saying about how it's a very, alive practice yeah and that's kind of the point of jukurpa for them that their their culture their stories their everything none of their laws are written down all of and th this is something that like it helps you understand where they're coming from and one of the reasons why keeping uluru intact is so important all of their inheritances come through passed down knowledge from mother to uh daughter from father to son um that knowledge being passed down is part of the inherent like rite of passage for both you know both daughter and son and um and there are differences between that knowledge which again we'll get into later but chukurpa for them is very alive and it is that it is that discussion of uh, of of stories it is that that knowledge of land it is it is the land itself and it has nothing to do with like ink on paper kind of laws. Uh, it is it is in the heads and the hearts of the Anangu people, which is why keeping Uluru intact is so important for them. Yeah, and, and to be fair, one thing that we did see, and it shows that like 
there are irresponsible people no matter where you go is like we saw an area that was burnt um and we didn't we thought maybe because they they are really into and understand controlled burning pretty well so we initially thought it was that kind of situation we found out later um at least from you know someone telling us if he had his facts right is that there had been a funeral in the area and that other communities of aboriginal people had come into the area for that funeral um and that actually some of those people were the ones that had very irresponsibly caught it on fire yes um and so it's like it's one of those things that yes just because they are maybe the owners of the land and like and do try to respect it like they're not perfect either they screw up every once oh, in a right, while right. <laughs> like right they're they are people people yeah. is people is people and again like this was somebody else coming into the land mm-hmm. and maybe not fully understanding the importance and the significance of that land and if they did maybe they just didn't take it seriously because they were kids who, yeah. who knows but um like you were saying we're not trying to make it seem like the aboriginal people here are flawless individuals with yeah. with always correct reasoning and things like that people are people are people but it is it, it was very interesting and we one of the things we'd been missing is like we had not gotten to meet very many uh, aboriginal individuals and we had not gotten to really understand their culture much which varies largely from community to community yes. so all we got was really one little snippet from that one area but it was nice to be able to sit back and be like okay here's a few of the puzzle pieces we've been missing yes and like yeah. let's put some of this together and try to understand yeah. it a little better and it, and it was really it was a cool experience yeah. it was something that felt like we're able to really sit back, enjoy their culture, respect their culture, and like get mm-hmm. a, get a get a bit of a piece of it. It yes. was nice. Yeah, and and again, like having that context of how their culture is communicated and kept yeah. is to me it changed a lot of my perspective of like how those people operate, um, and I think that that's a really important thing to like keep in mind going yeah. forward, listening to their stories, hearing the way that they interact with the land. Yeah. And then one thing, though, that I did not see them have, I think, the whole time we were there, though, um, or at least not in the classic sense um, that you guys are used to, was funky music. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Um, they do have their own funky music. They do. It's uh, they do with that didgeridoo, and it's pretty funky. I'm not gonna lie. That might be the funkiest instrument ever besides maybe the saxophone if i had some didgeridoo music i could splice in here which there may be i could look into it well but i think we got to stick with our normal funky maybe we'll open with some didgeridoo next episode that would be pretty sick i'll see what i can find the 10 episode commemoration of like you know like we're in australia (laughs) so we're gonna do stereotypical australian sounds (laughs) It, it won't probably be as smooth because uh, all that Spotify can really do is give you like these snippets of songs. Um, but I might, I'm, I'll see what I can do. If I can get a hold of some didgeridoo music, maybe our opener will have a little in the back. <laughs> that was very good. That was <laughs> Thank very good. You. Well, we, we're, we're gonna have to wrap up because if we don't, we're gonna keep people going with funky music for way too long. Yeah, we're gonna right. really over funkify them if we're not careful. But yeah, thanks for joining us. Like I said, we still have a lot to mention about the things we've learned. Yeah. And just like when I say that, not deep, just like 
what the heck's a honey ant? Like, <laughs> I can't wait, guys. The yeah. honey ants, I, I yeah. want it. I I'm want just, it. I'm just excited to dive more into the things that we learn about the, uh, the culture specifically, uh, because there's a lot. We learned a lot, and it's there's just going to be a bunch of fun facts. And sorry, I, I've got to go because I'm staring at this massive, looks like an eagle, probably. Probably, it might be a wedge tail. Um, as it's flying in the distance way bigger than any bird we've seen out here today but yeah hope you guys have a nice day thanks for listening uh like and subscribe I mean- <laughs> <laughs> oh golly bye, bye. <laughs>